Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scanner studio today is Professor Michael Lipscomb from Winthrop University. He's professor of political science there, and he's going to be giving a lecture on Constitution Day, which this year is September the 18th, at Winthrop, and the lecture is going to be entitled Constitution Day Observance, Free Speech and the Responsibilities of Citizenship. Professor Lipscomb's public lecture is one of a series planned at Winthrop and sponsored by Winthrop and South Carolina Humanities. Uh, the whole series is entitled News Literacy, the Future of Journalism. Michael, welcome to the journal. Thank you for having me. Delighted to have you. It's a, it's a topic that's under much discussion these days. You're a professor of political science and you also teach political theory, American right. political thought. What are you going to be saying on Constitution Day about free speech? One of the things that I'll be trying to do is to talk about free speech within the broader context of citizenship uh, and some of the responsibilities that inhere in the idea of citizenship, uh, which means I'll eventually have a chance to raise questions about freedom of speech and relationship uh, to that old idea of the truth. Uh, and how do our guarantees of free speech uh, relate to those responsibilities to engage in public discourse based on some kind of shared understanding of what counts as objective truth. And we know that that's tricky to do in this day and age where uh, given the kinds of micro-electronic uh, informational technologies at our disposal, we're awash with inputs of opinion and of data. But one thing we clearly discovered is we can't always trust everything that flows towards us as being reliable information. This creates this challenge of where we are in the kind of society with the kinds of technologies that we have now, uh, creates some specific kinds of challenges for the idea and the practice of democracy. Uh, in order for democracy to function, at the very least, you need an informed citizenry who can enter into deliberation with one another about the way they want their society to look. Uh, but in order for that to work, in a way that makes sense, I think, you have to be working with reliable information and with some shared sense of, of what counts uh, as the truth. So trying to draw out that larger context will be uh, an important focus of what I talk about on Constitution Day. All right. Being an undergraduate minor in political science. I thought I'd go back and, and read Article One of the Constitution and then talk about over the years there have been certain limits mm -hmm. and certain, I would people say, expansion of the definition of free speech right. through Supreme Court decisions. And I thought right. we might do a little bit of history as well as political science. So this is Article One. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof are abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And it says the freedom of speech, period. Now, it's been a while since I had a political science class, but it seems like one of the first limits on freedom of speech is you can't cry fire in a crowded mm -hmm. theater. That was a fairly famous case. Mm -hmm. From Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, an opinion from Oliver Wendell Holmes. All right. Why don't you discuss that just for a minute? Yeah. Well, first of all, finding a protection, uh, protection for freedom of expression in the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights, I think we can see signals its importance in terms of how uh, the founders understood rights and liberties contributing to the idea of the kind of free society that they imagined. And certainly that whole cluster of rights, freedom of or liberties, freedom of religion and freedom of press and freedom of assembly that you also find in the First Amendment are at the center 
of what it means for us to have a free society. Uh, those are the kinds of fundamental liberties that Justice Cardozo would later uh, recognize as being the test for what should count as those liberties that would may, be made binding not only on national governments, uh, but also state governments through uh, the process of in- incorporation. And if you go back and you look at that history, you'll see that freedom of speech was one of those first liberties that was also made binding on um, on state governments. So we, we, we have a good sense, I, I think, or we can see how uh, freedom of speech is such a central and important part of what constitutes a free society. But liberties very often come into conflict with one another, and the general right that we have to safety, uh, to live in a safe environment, could be impinged upon by a liberty-like freedom of speech. And so because of those conflicts, uh, the right of free speech is a limited one. It occurs within context related to a host of other liberties and to general concerns about the uh, social welfare. So the idea that you can speak is governed by what John Stuart Mill called the harm principle, that you can speak or say what you think is right to speak or say as long as it doesn't harm someone. Now, of course, the question emerges, what constitutes harm, right? Uh, We can think of situations where yelling fire in a crowded theater might cause a stampede, and that would cause a specific uh, kind of harm that could be predicted as a likely occurrence. Uh, The court has tended to protect speech, however, that's more abstract and more uh, political. So the courts over the years, through a long history of interpretation, have put some limits on free speech and recognized areas such as pornography and obscenity. uh, Burning the the flag. Well, and... Well, in a whole host of areas, is not necessarily being totally protected free speech. Now, of course, the court has ruled that burning the flag is a protected form of free speech as long as it doesn't threaten uh, other kinds of specific harms. So you can't express yourself by burning the flag if you're <laughs> going to run the risk of burning down the building. Uh, that well, right. and you can say anything you want to about somebody, but if you slander them, you could end up in court. Well, that's another place where there are reasonable, the courts have placed what they see as reasonable limits on uh, free speech. Except it seems that if you're a public figure, anything can be said, it's hard to slander a public figure. It is. Uh, the courts give folks a wide latitude about how they talk about uh, public figures. But I think, you know, ultimately that's something that's uh, important. Uh, we need to be able, uh, and I think this follows the logic of these kinds of decisions over the years and this kind of way of, 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 of reading the tradition of freedom of speech, we want to create the conditions for the greatest variety of comments and claims and insights in the public sphere, because that creates a marketplace of ideas that allows us to most fully investigate the kind of society that we want to be. It's hard to say in many cases that choices related to character and to personality are not related to what public figures do, the kinds of policies they choose. And so, yeah, a a wider degree of latitude has been opened up in terms of um, our ability to talk about public figures. But ultimately, I I, I think you can tell I'm, I'm okay with this more robust reading of the tradition of freedom of expression and how it should be uh, practiced. Um, And in fact, that's ultimately part of what I would like to point to in my discussion at Constitution Day. Given the the media world we now live in, are tweets, messages, all of that, is that considered speech? 
by the courts. The law is still evolving regarding what the law is, but I do think that it does constitute speech. Uh, I think the courts will eventually fully recognize these electronic forms of communication as uh, constituting speech. Uh, But I think standing back from what the actual law says and looking at the way in which these technologies are used is quite clearly speech. People are making political commentary and social commentary that is taken in by lots of different people and I think undoubtedly has an effect on the way people think and behave. Uh, So I don't know how you could somehow uh, cordon off this realm of speech from our wider sense of what a free public discourse should look like. Well, I just wonder whether that would be considered press or or speech. And, Mm -hmm. And you can't listen to the daily news or read it without somebody has said something online that, you know, you may express yourself and whoops, all of a sudden, a lot of people don't like what you had to right, say. Right, sure. So there, there is a response, no limit, but yes, you're free to say it, but if you get pummeled, that's okay too. Right? Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. I, I think a couple of things uh, I would say. One, this new technology has really challenged the idea that f- speech per se and freedom of the press are perfectly discrete categories, right? Mm -hmm. At what point does the citizen who writes commentary on blogs or on web pages, whatever the case might be, at what point does that person who is taking information and transmitting it to other people, at what point does that person become a journalist? It's not a perfectly easy divide to police, is it? But the way in which uh, the policing happens isn't by what the government does. It's by what happens in this electronic public sphere, how people respond to you, how they flame you or call you out uh, in different kinds of ways. Those who control, whether it's Google or Facebook, those platforms or entities have sort of undertaken the role of censorship, correct? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get to the contemporary world now. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there was something today about whether Holocaust deniers should be allowed on Facebook, right? On Facebook, yeah, right, right. Yeah, well, the people that run these uh, private enterprises, it looks like, have the ability to make decisions about what is and is not allowed on their platforms. Uh, They've typically been pretty laissez-faire about that. Uh, But that has created some difficulties, as the last election cycle has shown us. I guess, you know, to back up a little bit and to talk about um, what I would eventually want to get to in my lecture on Constitution Day is the constitutional protection of free speech is important, and I would endorse a robust interpretation of that uh, protected right to free speech. But ultimately, uh, in terms of uh, our responsibility as citizens, I don't think the Constitution is enough. Uh, And part of the reason is what you just pointed out a few minutes ago, which is when you say something, the way that you're getting policed isn't necessarily, most likely isn't by the government, but rather comes from what other folks in the electronic forum or in that electronic community, how they respond to you, right? If they let you have it, well, that's going to tend to push you away from making that kind of comment in the future. It's going to police the kinds of comments that you're likely uh, to make. Or conversely, you may get lots of thumbs up and... That may encourage you. Encourage it. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. So I I, I think what I would eventually want to do is to point to a model, a thicker model of citizenship than the one on which our Bill of Rights is premised. The idea of freedom of speech as a protection from the government interfering in your speech emerges out of the liberal political tradition. 
Now, I don't mean liberal the way that we use that in our day-to-day public discourse, but I mean liberal in its classical sense as referring to a government uh, for and by individuals where the authority of the government is derived from the consent of the governed, Mm -hmm. like in We the People at the beginning uh, of our Constitution. But I don't think that's enough. I think that we have to appeal to an older, more active notion of citizenship. The liberal tradition, after all, can be kind of thin, right? It says you have these rights that the government can't take away. But it doesn't explicitly address what you should be doing with those rights. Uh, The older tradition of citizenship that I would want to appeal to that goes back to Plato and to Aristotle suggests that you have an obligation to actively engage in free speech, in discussion about how you should govern yourself. So it's not just a passive ability to do something. It's the endorsement of actively getting engaged in public discussions. And that puts you in a position then to talk about what those kinds of discussions should look like. How should people go about learning about the subject they're talking about? How should they interact with one another when they engage in conversations in public fora? And then ultimately, I'm interested, what role does higher education play in, in making this kind of thing happen. You just pressed my button because I was going to ask you, okay. how are we going to get back to this world when in the schools of this country today, so little is taught about American history and this right. whole era that gave birth to this world we're talking about right. that came out straight out of the Enlightenment right. or political science or anything to do with community. It's not, a, it's not a part of the curriculum in many schools today. It's certainly, right. it's certainly not in the colleges. So what used to be common knowledge for a generation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I'm a good bit older than you, where we had to take certain, we had to take courses in political science and we took courses in American history. Not just because I'm a PhD, everybody who went to college with me at Davidson had the same course, right. they, you know, the same background right. in, or those at USC. That's not happening now. Right. I think it's a very important idea. The question is, how do we go about it? Right, right. How yeah. do we go about it? Right, yeah. No, I think that, they, first of all, I think it's important to uh, recognize <clears throat> that we're trying to craft an ideal about ways in which our society uh, could best live up to its potentials and make use of resources that we've spent as a nation a long time cultivating over several centuries, this idea of a free society that's based on a marketplace of ideas and which is based on reasoned deliberation. But I I think you're right. The idea that we should cultivate ourselves as the kinds of people capable of engaging in those conversations is seen as having less and less value. Now, first of all, I think you've got to get the critique right. You've got to figure out what's going on before you can figure about how to respond to what's going on. And I think one of the things that's happened is the increasing emphasis on tying education to specifiable jobs for which that education is going to provide specific training. Mm-hmm. For good reasons, people want to have this idea that there's a pipeline from your education directly into a career that's going to make you a lot of money, allow you to survive and flourish in your life, and allow you to pay for your education. Believe me, that's very understandable. But it's led to increasing emphasis by state legislatures, by school boards, by the whole industry of higher education, an increasing focus on shaping curricula to produce people who can get those specific kinds of jobs. Well, you know, for that to happen, things have to give. And as you emphasize one set or one kinds of courses or one approach to education, 
specifically tied to training people to for specific jobs that are going to allow them to make money, there starts to be, perhaps subtle at first, a de-emphasis on that broader kind of education that trains people to think critically. Uh, and I think that's a, I think it's a mistake for us to let that de-emphasis to occur, in part because we need people to be flexible to respond to the sometimes rapid transformations of the market as they occur in the kind of economy that we have. But, but also, we need folks who have the critical capacity to make judgments about what counts as good evidence, to have some sense of how the world fits together, how people from other cultures, other races, other circumstances might see things. We need all of that stuff that you start to build a a way of thinking through that comes with the kind of higher education that you're talking about, but which is increasingly being de-emphasized in the name of the economic outcomes that are so crucial in higher education right now. Well, let's let's back up a century. In late 19th century America, the schools, the public school systems were considered, one of their jobs was to produce citizens. Yes. Educated. It's not all that many folks went Mm -hmm. to school. Uh, If you look at the founding of universities, Thomas Jefferson, an enlightened citizenry. Right. That's part of the rationale and the debate over founding the University of South Carolina. Uh, So at, at all levels, at some time in our history, people looked education as more than just a training school. Correct. And we, we are where we are. We can always hope that maybe somebody will see the light that citizenship is important. But I want to go back further in history to these ideals. Go back to Greece and talk about government and citizenship. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm going to throw the ball to you because you're the political scientist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, as I said earlier, um, there are at least two distinct notions of what constitutes citizenship. I would call them the classical notion of citizenship, which ends up feeding into the more modern civic Republican tradition. Uh, And then, as we've talked about with people like John Locke and then our founders, there's this liberal idea of citizenship. I would say that our Bill of Rights flows out of that liberal thinner notion of citizenship. But the original conceptualization of citizenship, what we now call this classical notion of citizenship, was something very central to the Greek city-state's version of what counts as democracy. There was a belief that human beings could best fulfill their potential as a community, uh, and by extension, as individuals through participating in a consideration of the affairs of the city in the, in the public sphere. Mm-hmm. And that was the highest form that, uh, that a human's life could take. You could best reach your potential by participating in this deliberation about the affairs of the city. So human beings in this ancient tradition were seen as becoming the best that they could be by engaging in this practice of citizenship, which entailed using one's speech in order to use one's reason to deliberate about the best policies uh, that you should use to govern your your city-state. And Aristotle in the politics famously claims that man is a political animal. And he's a political animal because different differently from all other animals, human beings possess speech, which allow them to use their reason to figure out the best way to create a government that will allow them to live the good life, uh, the best kind of life that human beings could live. Now, Of course, 
Uh, that sounds pretty good in terms of later day small d democratic theory about uh, uh, how democracy could best work for for a government. But of course, in the ancient Greek uh, practice and in Aristotle's picturing of that practice, the ability of some people to participate in this public sphere, uh, typically men with enough property to have participated in military action, their ability to 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 participate in the public sphere, to most fulfill their human potential, was built on the back of the labor of women and slaves, who Aristotle famously argued uh, did not have the same uh, rational kinds of capacities that the men who could reach their potential in the public sphere supposedly had. Uh, So citizenship was very much tied to the specific abilities that the best people in society had uh, and allowed them to naturally find their place within that society as the folks who deliberated about what the rules and the policies and the actions uh, of that government should be. Well, skipping forward from ancient Greece back to the founding of this country to the 17th century to the mm-hmm. to the colonies, citizenship was defined in, in various ways, usually tied to property. Yeah. Uh, again, all all male, all white male. South Carolina had a very again little d democratic system from the beginning. You could vote if you owned 50 acres of land. Well, if you came here as a as a independent settler, you got 50 acres of land. Mm -hmm. So it meant that every able-bodied man was able to participate. Now, they couldn't hold office because things got, you had to really have property to hold office, but you could vote. And in fact, in the early 19th century, a law was passed that actually gave all white males, regardless of property, the right to vote in South Carolina. It was the first state in the country to do Mm -hmm. that, to, Mm -hmm. to have full male, white male franchise. You read the papers of the day. Little Colonial South Carolina had three newspapers representing mm. th- three different political points uh, of view. Right. And people would assemble for whether it's the county fair, the politicians, you know, debating the stump speeches in South Carolina, which was so famous from the 19th century up until after World War II. Mm. In every county, you had a meeting and everybody, you know, hundreds of people go out to listen. Right. Right. Changing world. But, I mean, literally, were you not only hearing what was said, you were participating. You weren't sitting in your living room listening to it on the radio or watching it on television. You were with a group as part of the process. Right, yeah. Definitely sounds like a more vibrant face-to-face political culture in which people were engaged in a way that, that probably made a difference. And it certainly, it sounds like it seemed like it made a difference to them, which is not often the case where we are right now. Well, and those folks obviously had better, they did not suffer from attention deficit. They could be out there for two or three hours right. in the sun right. and listen and pay attention and challenge what was being said. Right, 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 yeah. So, Michael, we need to pause for a moment. Okay. And let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Professor Michael Lipscomb from Winthrop University about the notion of citizenship and free speech. All right. We were talking a minute ago about citizenship and how we go about dealing with an informed citizenry mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and one that will deal with one another. Yeah. Right. So how? So it sounds like you're saying, I'm still asking that question, Dr. Lipscomb. I'm I'm still asking that question. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Well, of course, it's a great question. And, of course, I also don't have perfect answers. But um, as an educator, I do have an opportunity to try to work within higher education to make sure that even in these times where more emphasis is given to economic outputs and that's having some real effects on how funding decisions get made within universities, what 
courses of study get emphasized in universities. Uh, Despite all that, there's still uh, a space within higher education to try uh, to help our young students uh, fulfill their potential as citizens, to build that potential for critical thinking. So that entails, I think, folks working in higher education, like myself, doing it the right way, even though there's increasingly incentive structures pushing you towards other kinds of emphases. And I think, in some ways, this goes back to what you were talking about, your experience in higher education at Davidson, but this idea that there are certain fundamentals to clear thinking— such as building your ability to read and building your ability to write and building your ability to reason mathematically, including in this day and age, your ability to, re- to, to, to reason statistically, and to insist on a kind of accountability in terms of building those skills with students in ways that push them to think through longer arguments, to build the patience that thinking through longer arguments and complex situations entail. You know, doing the right thing from where I'm sitting includes continuing to advocate with administrators and with legislators and with the larger public about the virtues of an education that builds these these kinds of critical thinking skills, uh, which I, I just want to emphasize one more time. I, I don't think these should be packaged as something that's contrary to the university's mission of preparing students for economic success. Employers themselves want folks who can use this kind of critical thinking. And as I said earlier, in a complex economy, Uh, that sometimes shifts in dramatic kinds of ways, having a general kind of intellectual flexibility can prepare you for those kinds of dislocations. But but crucially, I want to come back to, we think building uh, this ability to think is important for the success and for the survival of a democratic country. Because if you don't have an informed citizenry capable of reasonable deliberation, then it's hard for a democracy to function. Michael, in in the last hundred years, the concept of protected free speech has changed, certainly in the 21st century uh, with the Citizens United case. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you like to comment on how protected speech has changed or become, or certain things have become protected, let's just say since World War II? Right. Well, that's connected to the question I thought you were going to ask, which is about where we are in general. Uh, And I think think it's a um, mixed bag, double-edged sword, whatever metaphor you want to use. I think we've seen an explosion in informational technologies that's dramatically changed what free speech means in ways that's pressing against law that was initially built for an earlier technological age. So there's a way in which that technology creates avenues for speech that didn't previously exist in ways that outrun any government's effort or even idea that it, that, that it, that it could be controlled. Uh, so free speech, so that answers both questions in a, in a way. It begins to answer the, the, the question about more more free speech being more protected in the sense that technology in a way seems to be dictating a wider range of what can and what does get talked about. Uh, but it's also part of that question about where we are in general because it reminds us this is powerful informational technology. It allows us to share information. It allows us to have interactions with folks we wouldn't otherwise be able to have. So that's a crucial part of the game, and one that's not completely negative, right? It does open up some positive possibilities. But, you know, the old saw for everything everything gained, something is lost. And certainly these new technologies 
take us out of face-to-face conversation. They fragment the way that we receive information, leading to uh, greater difficulty paying attention or making sense out of longer, uh, sustained kinds of uh, argumentation. And so, yeah, there is this kind of uh, explosion of free speech. More and more is getting said by more and more people. And, and one of the ways in which this explosion of more things being said by more people is the relationship of, it's interesting, free speech to our capitalist economy. Because as you pointed out, uh, making this quite clear in Citizens United and earlier in Buckley v. Vallejo, the court has held that money can be equated with speech. Which means that if you had the money to spend, you had the ability to speak across a wide variety uh, of different kinds of media. And so there's as much speech as there is a perceived demand or potential demand for someone uh, to hear that speech. But as you get this increasing proliferation of folks speaking in all of these different kinds of ways, what are your reference Uh, What is your common language uh, for the kinds of conversations that you might want to have for shared concerns and shared policy? That common language that you said learned at Davidson, Mm -hmm. which would be similar to what they're talking about at Hampton, Sydney, which might be, you know, all of these, right? And and I don't think that's taking place. And I I agree. I don't think it's taking place as much. And there's lots of things driving that. uh, including uh, the, the, this, these microelectronic informational uh, technologies. When computers first came out, and I actually had a computer in 1984, yeah. I, this is going to connect you with the world. Yes. And it does, but it also, you know, iPad, iPhones, yes. they isolate you. And yes, you're connected, Yes. but only virtually connected. Right. You're right. not really connected. Sure. And sure. besides, if you post something and I see it and I don't like it, I delete it. I don't I don't listen to anything else you say. Right. You can escape. Yeah. From, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, that's great. Those are two great examples of the we can call them the negative effects of these very productive technologies. Uh, and again, that's where I think the critical thinking you build with higher education can come into play, right? Mm -hmm. You recognize that it's not all good, that this great power that we get out of these technologies that allow us to speak freely also potentially misshape us in certain kinds of ways, right? Mm -hmm. Your example of how our ability to communicate through these technologies leads us to isolate one another one of the most comical things I saw many, many years ago now was I was traveling, and I think I was in Europe, a European cafe where people are renowned for talking and chatting and there being this scene there where real vibrant communication is going on. And I looked up and all four people at this one table were all buried in their separate cell phones, completely <laughs> eliminating that vibrant kind of conversation that you had usually associated with those cafes. Yeah. And some folks say, well, we lost the front porch because of, you know, there are lots of things that have, have, have changed that the idea of community, somehow people talk about it, Yeah. but it's not really there anymore. Right, right. Growing up in the, in the American South, into the 1960s, before air conditioning, the front porch was an important part of community. Right. You sat out on the front porch. Neighbors walked in the cool of the evening. People stopped and visited. Now, very few houses actually have a front porch. And I got to confess, ours is on the back. Uh, The screen porch (laughs) is on the back. (laughs) And, you know, yes, I know all my neighbors, but I I can tell you people that live in Columbia who don't really know their neighbors. Sure. Yeah, that that car, certain make. Yeah, they're they're three doors down, but I don't know who they are, and I don't know what they do. Right. That was unheard of in in the world growing up in the 1950s. Right. So it's it's not just technology; it's the whole way our society has, over the last 
50 or 60 years. I don't want to say evolved because I'm not sure we That's the right word, right? <laughs> how, about, how about developed, developed. Or, or user 21? Right. It's morphed yeah, right. into right. To what, to what yeah. we have. Well, several years ago, Robert Putnam wrote a book called Bowling Alone, where he bemoaned how Americans no longer got together on at nighttime, weeknights, weekend nights, and did things like join bowling leagues because that was a place where people came together in these kinds of face-to-face scenarios and they built community with one another through those practices. We've increasingly, and he's got a lot of statistical information to back this up, have become the people who don't bowl with other people. If we do bowl, we bowl alone. A lot of times we're staying at home uh, and watching TV or nowadays looking at these kinds of devices. So there's a way in which these things, I can they eviscerate communities in the old face-to-face sense. But, of course, they also provide potentials for building communities that might not have otherwise been possible, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's, it is this double-edgedness that we have to grapple with. Yes, you're right. It can link you know, the technology can serve as a link. Mm-hmm. But, you know, weighing the pros and cons, it's, it's kind of hard. And it's not just bowling alone anymore. People don't join civic clubs. Right. Uh, the fraternal organizations right. are, are all in right. decline. Right, yeah, he was trying to cover all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah. the, the glue that kept community right. together. Right, yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah, and so, I mean, I you know, one thing that... Uh, folks who are worried about these kinds of things it seems like can think about is how do you create these kinds of public spaces uh, that are not completely dominated by these um, informational technologies where people they come out they hear a lecture they see a debate they watch a play they watch a musical performance etc in some ways that gets taken care of by the broader economic civic culture that we have uh, because some people want to see those things but you know in 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 lots of places across the country there's opportunities for creating more of those kinds of spaces and certainly in a smaller town like Rock Hill where I live where we have a university the university I think can play a part in creating I, you know, what I would call a, a, a an economy of abundance, right? Mm-hmm. A center where people can take advantage of opportunities for things like these kinds of conversations. Creating these kinds of public spaces where different kinds of people could come together, maybe particularly people who don't agree about things uh, and have conversations is part of what we need. Because, of course, another problem that we have in terms of free speech in a country where we have lots and lots of free speech is there's very often a lack of civility that prevents people from even hearing one another when they have sharp disagreements. Yeah. You know, the, the idea of, of civil conversation People can say things in public now that 10 years ago would, would not have been. Yeah. It's not a question of political correctness. It's a question of common courtesy. Right. That was a part of being a good citizen. Yes. Michael, let's just say that we we're, we're for sure are dealing with the electronic world. If I'm out there, what can I do in using these resources to make myself mm-hmm. a better citizen, to communicate, and... How should I go about that? Well, first thing I would say is to try to build some savvy about what comes across your screen. Uh, And what I mean by that is try to build up some kind of critical ability uh, that would allow you to make judgments about the validity or the trustworthiness of what you're seeing. So where did the story come from? Did it come from or has it been presented by a source that has demonstrated integrity over time in ways that would give you faith about the validity of what they report? And, and try to get something from slightly different political angles, right? Maybe what does the New York Times have to say about this, but also what does the Wall Street Journal have to say about this? Build up some savvy about where 
news comes from, where information comes from, uh, and how different reportings of different events fit into a larger conversation uh, that's happening across the national and international news media. The other thing I, I think is important is to limit the amount that you use this stuff, which is a very hard thing to do. These things have some incredibly strange magnetic power over people. I see yours is attached to your hand. It is. I can't let go of it. I'm going to have a nervous breakdown if I let go of it, right? Uh, And of course, they've done psychological experiments and research to demonstrate how, in fact, attached people are to these addicting technologies. So building some kind of discipline in your life where you're not completely subservient to the technology, I think, is important. You know, particularly given the way that we've talked about how these technologies tend to fragment information and decontextualize it, looking to learn about the world from sources that are not entirely determined by these electronic medias is an important way of opening up some space, slowing down, considering things uh, in a broader context. Well, see, I'm glad to use the term addiction, but I would, you know, people say, well, this gives me more freedom, but then you have become tied into somebody else's control. Right. Back when iPhones first came out, there was a dean at the university, he's no longer there, had several professors, full professors, he would would go out and and have supper together, what have you. First thing he did, he put the cell phone on the table and somebody said, well, why? He said, because I might get an important call. And a friend of mine in the English department said, no, Dean, that means you are so unimportant that you're being controlled by somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, if you, and and he followed, he said, you asked three of us to have dinner to discuss matters related to the college. If you want to talk about that, put the damn thing in your pocket. Right. Well, and you, I mean, you had asked what we could do individually, um, I think by doing maybe those first two things and getting some distance from our technology and forcing ourselves into situations where we have to interact with folks face-to-face, I think that can do a little bit in terms of reminding us of other people's humanity and orienting ourselves towards other people in terms of our respect for the other and for our moral obligations towards other people. I think those things fit together in a way, right? I think there's a way in which, as you said, the technology, I use the word addictive, right? But it's about something from the outside having control over you, which means you're not autonomous. You're not giving the rule of your life to yourself. Somebody else is uh, giving it to you. But I think there's an odd way in which detaching from the technology and creating that space also helps you overcome the way it distorts our relationships to other people. And so I think that it puts you in a position to consciously and intentionally try to treat other folks with the kind of initial respect that seems to be a prerequisite for any kind of reasonable discussion which we've been saying is very important for any kind of democracy to function. Right. Yeah. All right. And before we sign off today, let's talk about this whole series that you're in, because yeah. I'm, I'm sure you helped write the grant that produced it. Yeah. So what are the, we talk about news literacy and the future of journalism. Yeah. You're talking about free speech. What are the other issues going to become, be covered? Because this is going to be a nine-month series. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Other folks will be discussing um, the, the, in a more specific way how to figure out what fake news is, how to, you know, how to identify it, uh, how to respond to it, how to find solid and valid news. There'll be other pieces about, well, what role does opinion writing, you know, the old op-ed pages, what role does that play in an age where everybody's an op-ed writer? What role do women play in the national conversation about political issues and the truth? So a whole host of issues uh, related to where we are at this point in time, related to issues of free speech, 
the dissemination of news, the relationship of that dissemination of news to the truth, and the broader tone or kind of conversations that we seem to be having right now. There'll be panels discussing all of those. It sounds like you've got all the First Amendments covered. I think we do. Okay. I think we do. All right. Michael Alford's giving me the wind-up sign. Any last words before we sign off today? Uh, Not much. Uh, Just thank you, first of all, for having me uh, here and having a chance to talk about these issues. And thanks for giving me a chance to talk about what I see as the important role that higher education can play uh, in continuing to build the strength of our democracy, both here in South Carolina and, of course, across the country as a whole. All right. Well, Professor Michael Lipscomb of Winthrop University, Thank you so much for being with us today on The Gerbil. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. We certainly covered the topic of what does free speech mean in terms of the Constitution, how it's been interpreted by the courts, how in the 21st century with all sorts of electronic media, what does it mean and how do people deal with it? And I think more importantly, how has all of this technology affected the concept of American citizenship. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.